Go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. We'll start with prayer uh, before we engage the message this morning. I want to pray for uh, Commerce Community Church is uh, a church that is a, um, a child in some ways of Crosspoint and an offspring of Crosspoint from years ago. Uh, and Commerce is appointing a new elder this morning, Kevin Tibble. And uh, many of you are close to Kevin and Audra or know Kevin and Audra. And I want to pray for Kevin and Audra this morning. I want to pray for this church and uh, for his fame and renown in commerce. <clears throat> Lord, before we engage the Scripture together, I want to pray for another church that, uh, that you know well and that you have, uh, have grown and built. I want to pray for uh, a couple that you've raised up, Kevin Tibble as an elder and Audra as an elder's wife. Lord, I want to pray first of all for their worship. Pray, pray for sustained, continuing worship. Uh, no um, fanfare, no light shows, no smoke machines, just faithful, continuing worship. Lord, I, pr- I pray that it's relentless uh, until Kevin and Audra breathe their last. Lord, I pray on that lifetime journey, however long that is, that whatever part of that, if all of that, they walk with C3, that you'll use them for your own glory, that you'll spend them on your people. Lord, I pray that they will be part of community, that they'll be enriched and blessed and fed and fueled by walking with community. And I pray that their mission to commerce will be born from that journey with the people and with you. Lord, I pray for wisdom that's beyond Kevin. I pray for a wisdom that comes from plurality that can only be experienced in Ron Perone, David Ferguson, and Kevin Tibble working together as peers, as brothers, searchable, accountable, true, faithful, a wisdom that is greater than the sum of the parts. Lord, I pray that that church will be blessed by that wisdom, by that leadership. Lord, I pray that the kingdom will be furthered and advanced through that leadership. Lord, I'm thankful that you're raising up tomorrow's church, that you're laying hands on them this morning. Grateful for that. and look forward to what you'll do through Kevin and Audra and continue to do through C3 in, in commerce. Lord, in these next few minutes for us, I pray that we can saturate ourselves with this passage and just sort of climb into it and that we can walk away with truths that change our perspective on life. I pray in these next couple minutes that we can sort of set aside our problems and um, our burdens, issues, concerns, the things that every single one of us are carrying that are appropriately brought to you. I pray that we can park those for the next few minutes and just enjoy your greatness and your story and your work and your grace extended to us in the work of the cross and the resurrection. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that if we can engage that without another motive, without another intent, just for the sake of enjoying it, that we'll leave here with a different perspective on all those things that we set aside for the last few minutes. 
And she'll give us an insight and a wisdom and discernment and fuel for walking faithfully in those situations as salty, bright, aromatic people of God. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. I pray that he will speak to your people this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 20, and this morning we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 19 through 23. I had plans of going all the way through verse 29, and um, I caught myself sort of wanting to rush through the rest of the book of John, confessing to you. Um, I don't know that we're going to go as slow as we have in the past, but the, the pace and tempo changes somewhat. But there's some other sermons that are emerging here, or at least another sermon that's emerging. So it may not be the end of May that we finish John. It may be on into June. But that's okay. Um, unless the Lord comes back, there's no worries. So, and of course, there's no worries if He does. So, <clears throat> so let's start in chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 for the sake of context. And we're going to sort of slow down, beginning in verse 19, and unpack it pull out some of the uh, luggage that's in verses 19 through 23, sort of saturate ourselves in the, in the passage. And then I have five things, likely just four things. It may be five, depending on how much energy I've got and how attentive y'all are. Um, truths that can be drawn from what we unpack. Okay, that's kind of a plan for the morning. Chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, we know from last week who Mary Magdalene was. She was a woman that followed Christ. She was faithfully following him. She was there at his death. She's there at his burial. She's there to see the empty tomb, and she's there to see the risen Lord. Uh, She was a woman that at some point in Christ's ministry, Christ had liberated seven demons from her. That's a lot. I think one is a lot. But seven must have been a really a lot. She must have really been a mess. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, we believe that to be John, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord or taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. It appears that she'd returned to the tomb She wept, she stooped, or as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We pick up the focus, slow down on verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Keep in mind, context-wise, this is Easter evening, the first Easter in history. By this point, the disciples know that the tomb is empty. They know that for sure. Mary Magdalene, at this point, has seen the risen Lord. Peter and John have found the tomb vacant. And the Luke account says that Peter went home marveling. And we don't know that he went home marveling, believing that Jesus was risen. He's just marveling. John's believing, too. We know that much. We don't know what he's believing. He's just believing something, believing that the tomb is vacant, maybe believing that the Lord is risen. By this point, Christ has appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. And these two who heard Jesus teach from Moses and the prophets about himself come to the eleven this night, and they share with them and announce to them that they'd seen the risen Lord. So here we are at the end of the first Easter, that night, with the disciples, the eleven at least, hunkered down. The word for the day, hunkered down. We don't know who's believing what at this point. Likely all of them are confused to some extent. The Mark account tells us that they didn't believe the eyewitnesses' report and that Jesus actually rebuked them for that when he showed up. So if we take that collective report, it doesn't appear that anybody's really believing that Jesus is risen at this point. One thing we know for sure is that they're afraid. For they are hunkered down behind locked doors. The doors are locked, it says, for fear of the Jews. The Jews actually asked Pilate, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to post guards at the tomb for fear that the disciples would go and take the body. So maybe at this point, the disciples are fearful, thinking they're going to think we took the body. And maybe they have 11 crosses lined up for each of us. I think I would be fearful too, considering what happened to Christ just a few days earlier that they witnessed. One thing we know for sure is that they are afraid, and here they are hunkered down behind locked doors, and it's here that Jesus shows up and he gives a very common Jewish greeting Peace be with you. It's even common today. The Jews will share that greeting. Shalom Aleichem. The other will respond. Aleichem Shalom. A very common Jewish greeting that's repeated again in the passage we're looking at today. And repeated yet again in the passage we're going to look at next week. But I want you to know just to prepare you for the substance of the message. It's more than a greeting. Greeting. 
Now, back to our passage. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here again, the repeated phrase, peace be with you, along what is John's version, along with what's John's version, of the Great Commission. If you've been around church any period of time, likely you're familiar with the Great Commission Go therefore, the Matthew version, go therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. And lo, guess what? I'm going to be with you always. Very familiar passage. This is John's version of that, and it's uber simple. It's much less complex than the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, but it's no less rich. For he says... As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. As I was sent in the way that I was sent is the way that you're sent. I study an old translation sometimes. It's called the Young's Literal Translation. And according, and its, its use or handling of this passage says, According as the Father has sent me, I send you. That's a robust Commission. It's much shorter than Matthew's, but it is robust. As the Father sent me implies how he was sent informs his sending his disciples and thereby sending us. A couple of considerations that could be a whole sermon in and of themselves. He was sent out of community. We've considered in the past months, even the past years, the nature of the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Spirit inter-involved, interpenetrating, interconnected. It's called the perichoretic nature of God, the dance of God, this community that existed before time ever began. That's what differentiates our God from the God of Islam, who is an absolute singular nature. Our God is one God in three persons. He's always had community. He's not dependent as the God of Islam is. On creation to be loving. He's already loving in and of himself. As Father loves Spirit and Son, and Son and Spirit love Father. This nature of community has already existed, and Christ was sent out of community. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself that the nature of our being sent from this point on into Greenville, into other nations on the other side of the earth, are far south of here our far west of here, has got to be sent out of community. There's no such thing as a renegade evangelist. Well, there is such thing, but it's not a proper evangelist. A proper evangelist is sent out of community, just like the Son was sent out of perfect community. And as the Son was sent, so we're sent. The Son was sent to participate in an incarnate ministry. Thankfully, He didn't remain in the throne room and pine for us. He put on some skin, and he got dirt on his sandaled feet, and he showed up in the context, and he engaged. Next, I want you to consider that he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you right now, I probably have at this point after preaching in John for the last 
seven years, I probably have 30 books on John in my library. I didn't look at all 30, but for the ones I did look at, everyone handled this differently. Because the paradigm for the Christian faith is that the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost. Pentecost is seven weeks after this. So what in the world is Jesus doing right here? I think I have an argument that I think has merit. In John chapter 7, verse 39, you can turn over there if you'd like. I want to show you something. He's promised something. This is at the Feast of Booths. It's a seven-day feast, and at every at some point each day, they have a procession to the Pool of Siloam. They take a golden pitcher, and they go scoop a pitcher, not a picture, not a picture but a pitcher, pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam, and they march back to the temple, and they pour it in this big bowl. And on the final day of the Feast of Booths, they take this big bowl, and they pour it over the altar. Whoosh, by that point, it's a, I bet it's a mess of water. And it's on this last day of the Feast of Booths that Christ publicly said this. And I would not be surprised if it was at the moment that they poured the water all over the altar. We don't know it for sure, but it would be appropriate that he said this. On the last day of the feast, verse 37, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And I could just hear the water splashing over the altar. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You can understand why they want to crucify him. You just uh, kind of interrupted our feast of booze there, dude. Who in the world are you? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now look what he says, or look what John says next. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorification involves crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Now, that hadn't happened at this point, and that's why they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. But at least by this point, crucifixion and resurrection have happened. And Jesus shows up, and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I told Scott, I said, a couple points in this sermon today, I really am kind of like, man, I'm at a loss. I don't have a clear explanation. Like why the doors were locked, I don't have a clear explanation. I know that John means something there, but I'm not going to go freestyle and shoot from the hip on what that might mean. And I'm also not going to go freestyle and shoot from the hip and say this is exactly what's happening here. I will say what I believe is happening here with the Holy Spirit. It seems to be that these men received the Holy Spirit this night. It seems. Some guys say that it's just an image of what's going to happen at Pentecost. Some guys say it's just a visual aid of something that will help them understand what happens at Pentecost. But the fact that Jesus breathes on them tells me it's more. We'll look at that later. It seems that they received the Holy Spirit that night. And here's why I make that argument. Consider here that they're fearful behind locked doors. Consider, too, that he shows them his scars. He breathes on them. He announces the Holy Spirit is being received. And then there are hints of these dudes being different. Now, they have that blip on the radar where they go fishing like a bunch of knuckleheads. But there's other pictures that tell us these guys are changed. Something is changing here. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. 
Luke chapter 24. Beginning in verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. This is the ascension. This is Luke's version of kind of the rest of the story after resurrection. And watch what they do next. They worship him. And they return to Jerusalem, the place where he was crucified, with great joy. There's no mention of fear here. Pentecost hadn't happened yet. There's no mention of fear. They return to Jerusalem, the place where Christ was crucified, with great joy. And they're continually in the temple, blessing God. I don't see men hunkered down anymore. Here's another picture. Stay there in Luke. I wanted to read this passage to you from Acts chapter 1, verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They devoted themselves to prayer, and there's no mention of the room being locked. Now again, I'm making an argument but it looks like it's pre-Pentecost, that these guys are operating differently. Something happened this Easter night. Luke chapter 24, right there, the verse before where I read in verse 49, it says, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city till you're clothed with power on high. I think that's talking about Pentecost. So something happened this night in the upper room. It had to do with the Holy Spirit, and it was profound. Something happened that I believe changed these men, and what happened at Pentecost was power showed up. It looks like the Holy Spirit showed up this night and was breathed on them. And then at Pentecost, the disciples received, and then others received, the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to this and consider it more later. And then lastly, there's this weird statement in John, going back to just kind of unpacking the last little piece of luggage. And I'm not even going to unpack it. I'm just going to read it and just scratch my head with you over it. If you forgive sins, men, he says to the disciples, they're forgiven. If you withhold, though, it's withheld. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's a difficult passage, and it's scary, the authority that he's given the apostles right here. And if we have time, we'll consider this at the end of the sermon. If not, then we'll follow up with it next week. Now, there's five key observations that I'm going to tell you right now that we're going to make four for sure, maybe five, that I'll tell you right now really have nothing to do with your marriage, nothing to do with the problems that I prayed you'd park, Nothing to do with real practical daily things directly. But I promise you this. When they are enjoyed, they will transform your marriage. When they are enjoyed, they will change and give you perspective on those problems that you parked. I promise you that. So let's engage these truths. The first truth. 
dealing with the greetings. There's two greetings here. Both, both of them shared the same way. Peace be with you. I want to deal with the first one first. This one seems to be doing or dealing with a vertical issue. Peace be with you. The first greeting seems to be dealing with a vertical issue. <clears throat> now, I told you about all these books that I've got on John. All these books really have a different perspective, too, on why he said, peace be with you, why he repeated it. I found some guys that I trust, some guys that I have great respect for, said that peace be with you must have been quite a shock for a bunch of men who were certainly expecting a behind chewing. But the last thing that happened was they bailed on their Lord and ran off like a bunch of chickens. Certainly they're expecting a behind you, and, and certainly they must have been thinking they're going to be rebuked. And instead he shows up and says, peace be with you. Everyone exhale. Oh. Now, while I really like this notion, it doesn't really reflect the synthesis of the Gospels because the Mark account says that they did get a behind you. This, this, this has a point here in a moment. The Mark account says that he did rebuke them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart that they had not believed those who, who testified to have seen him. I love the thought of him showing up without chewing anyone's behind and with only the words, peace be with you, but it didn't unfold that way. He did rebuke them for unbelief. But guess what? This setting is less about whether or not the disciples were worthy of a butt chewing. The reality is that we're all worthy of far worse we can debate over what they were expecting and what they actually got. And that's not the point of this passage. The real point of this first greeting seems to be connected to what he does next. For the passage says, when he said this, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, his hands, he would have been pointed to this point on his wrist right here. That's a point between your radius and your ulna, the two bones in your forearm. It's the only place that would support the weight of a body. Nail holes healed. Peace be with you. And he points to the nail holes and the spear scar in his side. This first greeting is dealing with what seems to be a vertical issue. The issue of peace between God and man. Turn to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> this will be a very familiar passage for you. It's, it's, a, it's part of a common um, carol that we sing at Easter. I mean, at uh, Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. You can probably remember how that verse typically goes for the hymn of the carol singers. It's not a good translation. This is the proper translation. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now, I want you to consider context. Consider who's where this is being shared, on what time and what context. There's a heavenly host worth of angels that are seeing this over a dirty, dark field where a bunch of dark, excuse me, dirty 
lowly shepherds are hanging out. And the angels are singing this song on an appropriate night, the night of the birth of our Lord. It makes sense that they would sing about peace between God and man on the night that Christ is born. Because that's what Christ brought, was peace between God and man. This first peace be with you is pointing to his hands and his side, is saying peace was earned in what I just did for you. He is how God is pleased with man. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, this is so helpful for me to consider all the dynamics. These expectations that we think the disciples may have had, expecting a behind chewing. And then Christ shows up, rebukes them, greets them, shows them his hands and his side. These details are helpful for me because they help me see that I don't ride the roller coaster of God's pleasure or displeasure. I was a good boy today. God's pleased with me. Mm, I really fumbled today, so God's not pleased with me. What it makes me realize is that his pleasure with me is based on my enjoyment of and faith in and satisfaction in and worship of his son. His pleasure with me is marked by scars of enjoyment. I urge you to not ride the roller coaster of good boy, bad boy, good girl, bad girl days and to realize that he's pleased with you because of this and this. Man, that's got to set you at ease. It's got to set you at ease. Stop working for your salvation. It was already earned. Peace be with you. Second thing I want you to see is that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We're going to deal with the second greeting in a moment. But I want you to see that the the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That there is gladness in the revelation of Christ. Consider the context that Christ found them behind locked door. Here they were, according to the Mark account, hard-hearted, unbelieving, hunkered down behind locked doors, and this is where Christ shows up to the disbelieving and fearful. We've got to really enjoy that he shows up in this manner. For he finds them in fearful circumstances, hunkered down. He shows up, reminds them of his finished work. Look here, look here. And then notice this, consider this. Still behind locked doors, they find gladness. The circumstances haven't changed at all. The Jews may still be hunting them. And they may still be aware of that. The doors are still locked. But the perspective is different. He finds us in fearful circumstances, hunkered down often. Some of you came to faith out of fearful circumstances behind locked doors. He shows up and reminds us of this and this. His finished work. And then still behind locked doors, we find gladness and joy. The circumstances may not change at all, but your perspective on those circumstances is altogether different in light of the victory of the cross and the resurrection. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
That second point has a testimony from a guy who was there that night, that Easter night, a man named Peter. Oftentimes when I engage an account of where Peter did something or someone else did something, I like to go read their letters and see if that event changed them and see if those details show up in how they write. And I want you to see this night, I believe, shows up in how Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the first night that He saw that resurrected Lord. He's caused us to be born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, this inheritance, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Though now for a little while, you might be hunkered down behind a locked door thinking somebody's hunting your life. Though for a little while you might be fearful about something, you rejoice. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, skipped to the second part of the dash, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think, peace be with you, Christ showing up behind locked doors. I read that in Peter. I read where he's talking about these trials. And I'm thinking about this guy taking on this night where he must have been fearful, wondering what the Jews were going to do to him. And then I'm thinking about that moment where Jesus just shows up in the room behind locked door. And he's speaking about the revelation of Christ. And I read that part right there, those two parts, those two pieces of the anatomy of faith. And I said, I bet I know what comes after that. I bet joy comes after this. And look what happens next. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter shows us the anatomy of faith right here that I believe is the anatomy for most of, most of us of faith. Trial, fear, locked doors, revelation of Christ. Look at this, look at this, and then gladness and joy. It's the anatomy of faith. I think about times where Christ has grown me in my faith as, a, as an individual and as family members, and it's been the times where we have been in crisis. Times where Christy and I were fighting for our marriage. Yeah, pastor and his wife have to fight for their marriage too. Times where we're dealing with two of our kids being visually impaired. And did God miss something when he's knitting them together in the womb? And this is how we realize, now I realize and see, we realized it a long time ago, but I'm seeing it right here in front of me, the anatomy of faith behind locked doors, fearful. He shows up and says, look at this, and look at this. And then we walk away glad with the door still locked. The circumstances unchanged. They can't see any better. My wife and I still have to fight, fight. To put the gospel on display well. Circumstances haven't changed, but we have gladness and joy. I'm thankful for the anatomy of faith. And I'm thankful for the witness and testimony of Peter that shows it to us. That's good medicine. The third thing, the second greeting 
Peace be with you. <clears throat> the first one deals with a vertical issue. The second one deals with a horizontal issue. The first, peace be with you, seems to deal with the vertical problem of having peace with our Creator. In some ways, Jesus is saying, hey, you now have peace with your Creator because of this work. God's pleased with you. Exhale. But the second one has a different trajectory. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you, is what he says right after it. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now so I'm sending you. The second one is dealing with you. The first one could be read, peace be with you. These guys are hunkered down thinking, Jesus just showed up. He's just going to just destroy us. <laughs> He's going to be so mad at us. And instead he says, Peace be with you. The second greeting says, peace be now with you. I earned it, and now you're going to be a messenger of it. As I was sent to earn this vertical peace, now you go and tell the story of peace well earned. The first greeting is, peace be with you. The second greeting is, peace be with you. Now you're a herald of peace. Unlock the doors, boys. Go and tell. Unlock the doors, Peter and John. Now, go and tell. And that's the spirit of John's commission. Peace was well earned, and now you go be a messenger of it. I'm going to share a passage with you. You can just listen from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. If you want to just jot that down. For he himself is our peace, vertical, who's made us both one, horizontal, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, the two most unlikely people on the face of the earth, other than man and woman. He's made us one by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create himself in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and preached peace to, to, to those who were near. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus didn't preach in Ephesus. Guess who did? Paul preached in Ephesus. Others likely preached in, in Ephesus. Timothy, maybe. And here he's saying, but Jesus preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. He preached through those guys who were the ambassadors now of peace. Peace be with you. Now peace be with you. You unlock the doors and go and tell. That's the character of what's taking place here. This peace be with you, the second one, deals with the horizontal reality. Our horizontal message of peace to Greenville, to other nations where we have families, springs from the vertical achievement and purchase of peace. Our message of peace to those at L3, to those in our neighborhood, to those in Rowlett, to those in commerce, to those at the airport, to those wherever you work, 
springs from the vertical achievement and purchase of peace. And let me tell you something. If you ever take that vertical achievement of peace for granted, your horizontal message of peace is milk toast and lame and empty, and it will never change anyone's life, and it will never make a martyr. And it will never leave anybody to sell everything and go move to a foreign land. The gospel will never be worth that. If we ever assume this vertical achievement and purchase of peace in our message, then this horizontal thing becomes lame and milk toast. The second, when peace be with you, deals with a horizontal issue. The fourth thought, and really I think all I got for you this morning, the last one, is that our sending is a product of recreation. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And when he had said this, I'm not reading that passage yet. I'm going back and looking at John, but I want us to look at this passage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, in light of what we've seen in John. And when he had said this, this second greeting that seems to be dealing with the horizontal, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. The only other use of that word in our Bibles, breathed, There are no other Greek uses in the New Testament. The only other use of that word breathed is in what's called the Septuagint, which was an early Greek writing of the Old Testament. It's like our first commentary on the Old Testament because the words that they chose, Greek is so um, complete and illustrative and informative It's like someone sitting down with our Old Testament saying, let me explain to you what's being said here. This whole Old Testament being translated in Greek is called the Septuagint. The only other place this word is used is here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Let's read it. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. These ancient events, you need to realize, like in Genesis, aren't just little cute kid stories. They help us understand the rest of the story. In fact, we can't understand the rest of the story, except that we have dined on these old, ancient images. This Easter night, I want you to realize, was a recreative work. This first Easter night, where Jesus breathed on these disciples smells of Genesis chapter 2 where God breathed into man. And here he's breathing into a new humanity. Turn to John chapter 3. Do you listen to a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night 
and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is kind of saying, hey, Jesus, you got some pretty amazing tricks. How in the world do you do them? Jesus doesn't even answer what Nicodemus seems to be getting at. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, "Uh, well, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There are two births there. The water birth is like when someone says, "Uh uh-oh, my water broke. That's a human birth. It could also point to baptism. It probably, John is so layered. He likely has a second layer there. But very clearly, he's talking about flesh birth, like when your water breaks. But unless one is born of water and the Spirit, the word there in Greek for Spirit is pneuma. It can also also be translated breath or wind. Unless he's born of water and breath or wind or Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, our pneuma, our breath, our spirit blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The reality is that we are reborn by the breath of God are the holy breath, the hagias pneuma. That's a direct translation of what the Holy Spirit is. Hagias, holy, pneuma, spirit, or breath. And here's the reality on this first Easter night. The holy wind, capital W, wished to blow that night. And the first Easter night, 11 men are recreated and born again, this time by the Spirit. His breathing on them is fitting. It's a recreative work. It smells of 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So go and tell now as a new creation. That's the point of the breathing takes gives whole new meaning to the cultural mandate that God gave Adam to be fruitful and multiply that shapes our understanding of a commission. That's our new cultural mandate, our new version of being fruitful and multiply. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Go therefore into all nations, to all people groups, teaching and preaching and making disciples of all nations, all people groups. This adds so much more meaning to that when we see this recreative work. Go, therefore, and tell as a new creature. I think I'm going to go ahead and share the last point with you briefly. The last point is that we are sent with authority. This is that other passage that I said, you know what, this is just problematic. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. It smells popish to me, frankly. Your sins are absolved. I mean, it 
wear a funny hat. I'm not picking on Catholics. I'm just saying it smells popish to me. And that's why he's like, oh, that's very uncomfortable. I want you to see what's being said here. There's no demonstration, no evidence that the church ever exercised this authority at face value. There's no evidence that these apostles who received this this night ever exercised it as it reads plainly. So we have to do just a tiny, tiny bit of work to understand it. I'm going to read two passages to you and you can just listen. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Peter is dealing with a man named Cornelius. He says, to him, all the prophets bear witness, that's to Christ, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's the content of the message. Everyone receives forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. And here's another passage. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Paul is is speaking, writing or speaking. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This seems to be an issue of authority and message. It's not about someone having some sort of wand and saying, Hey, I forgive you and I don't forgive you. It's about the authority that the church has in the message. Would you think about this for a moment? The most authoritative thing that's going on in Greenville at this moment, and in fact, this week, is the exposition of the gospel. It is the most authoritative thing that is being communicated in this community this week. The mayor might meet. The governor might show up. The president might come come show up and declare something. Something might be passed through chains. And, you know, I know how that stuff works in these businesses. You know, oh, man, this looks like this is going to change the way we operate. I'm hearing these guys at L3. Whoa. This is more authoritative than even that. The gospel is the most authoritative message In the world. And the church has the God-breathed authority to preach the news about what God has done in Christ. And the reality is that it's good news to some. A few. A few. And it's bad news to most. I know thanks. Because it says that I am completely bankrupt. It says I'm completely insufficient. And yet God is perfectly sufficient. I don't like that message. We have an authoritative message to share that at the same time it's a message of forgiveness in Christ, the very same message is a message of judgment and forgiveness withheld to those who reject Him. Do you realize that? The very same message that gives you hope, that you cling to, others walk away and say, no thanks. Do you realize they seal their their judgment? 
Judgment is sealed in the rejection of Christ. It is an aroma of life to a few, but an aroma of death to most. It is. And this authority seems to be tethered to the commission. The church teaches that those believing in Christ experience forgiveness of sins, and those who don't trust in Him will not experience forgiveness of sins. That's what we share as we make disciples. We can offer a program and a bulletin that's got all kind of cool stuff in it. How to manage your money. How to get out of debt in three years. How to stay married. How to be a parent. How to keep your kids from choking you or each other. You know what? There's nothing wrong with those things. I'm glad for those things, but that's not the substance of the message. That's not the authority. Those really are sort of bait. I want to kind of tease people and get them in the door so they can hear the goods. The reality is the message has been charged with the authority, or the church has been charged with the authority in this message. And we lose our authority as we try to make the gospel pleasing to everyone. We do. We lose our authority when we try to make the gospel pleasing to everyone. You think you have no authority if everybody doesn't receive you? That's not the way the gospel works. Most will say, according to our Bibles, no thanks. That weighs wide, remember? But some will say, no, that's legit. I want to walk in that narrow way. That's ultimate reality. And church, we've got to know that it is what it is. We've been sent to share the only way to make peace with our Creator. And that's through the finished and complete person and work of Jesus Christ. That's all I got this morning. Let me pray. Before I pray, let me share with you why I want to share that last point. Because we have people that are deploying to the mission field um, this week to the far corners of the field. And I thought, man, how can we not take a few more minutes? And also knowing that some people are going to be mad at me. Hey, man, you had another point you didn't preach. I'm, I'm mad at you. So sometimes I just feel real feeble in the pul- pulpit. And this is one of those mornings. Christy's gone, and I'm always discombobulated when my woman's out of town. She's hiking the Grand Canyon right now. For real. So um, I'm all out of sorts. But I shared that last point in some ways for men and their wives or their wife that are heading to the field this week. So they'll be ready, recognizing the authority of the message. And they'll be faithful with the message, not trying to take the sharp edges off, not trying to make something palatable and doing damage to it. Let me pray. God, what a good God you are. I'm so thankful that you can speak in spite of us. I pray that you've spoken this morning. I pray that, I pray that you've been an encouragement. Lord, I pray that this church has been faithful as we've considered that we have crazy peace with you right now. And that we can visualize those scars that Christ still has as he sits at your right hand. That that can somehow be tattooed into our understanding and view on life so that we can understand that we are always in good standing with you. That you are pleased with us because of that 
perfectly finished, complete work. Lord, I'm thankful for that first greeting that we have peace with you through Christ. Lord, I'm thankful that you bring gladness to us behind locked doors, light in, in scary, fearful situations. I'm thankful that we come to know you best in and through those situations at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have joy unspeakable through those times. We are grateful that you are able to do those sort of things. I'm thankful for the second greeting that now gives us a message of peace as we deploy now to Starbucks, L3, Rubbermaid, France, south side of Greenville, north side of Greenville, to the office, to the den. Lord, I pray that we as shepherds can be messengers of peace with our family. Lord, I'm thankful that you've given us, you've earned it for us, and you've given us, given it to us as a message of hope for folks. I'm thankful for the recreative work because, Lord, you know I needed a new create. I needed a new creature. I needed something new to happen to me because my old creature wouldn't do. I'm thankful that you've made us into a whole new humanity, that we have a whole new identity, that we can unlock those doors as a new creation and go and tell. And Lord, I'm thankful for the authority of this message. I'm thankful on those Sundays even where I don't feel like, even where I may feel discombobulated personally, that when I stand and deliver that you speak to your people. When Brad or Scott or Steve, when your preachers that you've called out to preach and expose the word to your church week after week, stand and deliver an authoritative exposition of the word that the church has authority. And I'm thankful that a few smell it and say, that smells good. Lord, I'm thankful for those few, and honestly, I pray for a lot more. I'm thankful for those who are in our body who have smelled it and said, man, that's legit. That's life. That's true. I want that narrow way. I want to enjoy those scars. And that empty tomb and that very seated Lord, along with a bunch of other people called the church. I'm thankful for our robust, salty, aromatic, life-giving, life-altering message. What a scandal that we have the chance to enjoy it and that we can even bear it. We love you, Lord. We continue in worship and supper in song and in giving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Supper here in a few minutes. Excuse me. Um, I'm glad are you glad? I'm glad we can approach this table with gladness it's a good reminder of the words 
Uh, the word is always a good reminder, and I want to encourage you in something. As I was sitting there uh, this morning and sitting here on Wednesday night, you know, a, a steady delivery of the word to us is good for us. Um, as we've been walking through some things in the last few weeks, at least for me, um, as we've been talking about a, a cross prepared for Barabbas that Jesus took, it was a cross that was prepared for us. It was ours. And continuing, um, where do we find the strength, the ability, the power uh, to continue to be faithful? Um, it's in this word. It's modeled out. It's God's faithfulness. And I kept going back to you ever get a song in your head sometimes and it's just, you don't even know why it's there? I'm sure, you know, I probably heard it. Or, um, but this song, and it's really taken right from Isaiah 53. It was pierced for our transgressions. Many of you know it. But it was just in my head a lot. And over the past couple of weeks, I've sat down in Isaiah 53. Many times I've read through that. And it's, I didn't read it with gladness. And I think we, you know, a lot of times we focus on ourselves and we focus on our shortcomings, our flesh, and our inability. And we never really turn towards what we're to remember, which is Christ, a finished work, and be satisfied and be glad. Thanks for that encouragement this morning, Ben. I, I want to be glad. I want to enjoy this, even though it's hard to take many times, and I may find myself in a trial. But I want you to hear through Isaiah 53, and as I was... Walking through that, other scriptures showing the faithfulness of God, speaking to the faithfulness of God. In Isaiah 53, 1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what came to mind to me was Matthew 16, uh, when Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If we see anything, if anything's been revealed to us, if we hear it, and it's the gospel, it's because of God. He's given us that ear to hear. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And Philippians 2 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It brought us peace. It's our story, guys. And with his stripes, those scars, we're reminded that we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By our oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What was that? First Peter 2 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. It was the purpose of God. It was the plan of God. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Second Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is our story. Romans 5, listen. For as by one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do we go to the table with gladness? We can go with gladness. Enjoy the gospel. It's our story. It's God's purpose and plan. What I see in this is God's sovereign hand. In Isaiah, as this is being written and shared, this is what's going to happen. And as I've given you testimony out of the New Testament, this is what happened. God's faithful and will accomplish his will. And he has accomplished his will in a finished work of Christ. Let's enjoy the table. Let's enjoy the supper this morning, satisfied with Christ.
Ballard family is going to make their way up here. This is John and Rebecca, and they have with them Audrey, and Darby is actually in her class, and they're coming to join today. As we consider this morning the authority of the message that's proclaimed week by week, then joining a church is, is not a small matter. You can end up with churches full of people not taking it seriously if you have people who don't take joining a church as something serious. And so, um, as I've met uh, with the Ballards, I've, I've just been encouraged. Um, they've visited for a while, and that's good. Anytime someone is looking for a church home, we encourage them uh, know what the church believes and then visit for a while. Don't just go once and say, okay, this is it. That's not enough time. You haven't considered it enough. And so um, I've been encouraged as I met with them knowing they've, they've been visiting and any church can, can proclaim a doctrine. So you can go online and read our membership covenant and you can see this is what they believe. But then you go and you walk to see if, if they're actually walking in that truth. And that's why we urge people to spend time considering what it is. So y'all come, meet them, have them to your home, get to know them, uh, and um, welcome them to this church family. Steve? Let's pray. Father, what a joy to hear your word proclaimed, your truth, Father. I pray that it's, it, it brings us to uh, a place where we are glad in you. Uh, knowing and trusting your faithfulness and not our own, uh, your word, your truth, your purpose, the awesome, intentional movement of your spirit and your hand in our lives. Uh, Father, as these go out from among us, uh, Father, I pray uh, that uh, we are mindful. Father, I pray that you use that as an opportunity to grow us in our faith and trust in you. And Father, in those opportunities that Derek and Casey and Renee, as they go out, they're faithful to be obedient to your word, uh, Father. And I uh, pray that we are faithful to pray and grow in our trust. Uh, Father, what a, what a joy to be among your people, to enjoy the fellowship, the blessing you've intended for us in that. Father, I pray that we would be faithful in that as well. Thank you again for your word and for your blessed son. We pray in his name. Amen. You're dismissed.